0: Fast fashion. Brands like H&M and Zara have been selling us quick and cheap clothes for years. And love it or hate it, many of us feel like we can't live without them. But Hoda Katsby would like to tell you otherwise.
1: Fast
2: fashion is an industry that actually requires violence, much like policing or prisons. And this is, I think, what is really central to our work is that We're not trying to reform fast fashion. We're trying to get rid of this industry of violence because there will always be violence so long as this need and the production quotas and the speed exists.
0: With supply chain problems spreading around the globe and holiday shopping ramping up, we're looking at fast fashion in a new light and what happens when you try to take it on. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Today, we're updating a story we first shared back in April.
2: Fast fashion is actually a pretty modern phenomenon. And proof of that is if we just look into our mother's or grandmother's closet, the fact that that still exists for us to be able to wear and use and pass on. Nothing that you buy at fast fashion will ever last to be able to pass on to your children. And the reason for that is that it's not made to last.
0: Hoda is an Iranian American activist and blogger who's been writing about the intersection of fashion and politics for years. But along the way, she decided not just to advocate against fast fashion, but to create an alternative. She launched a small U.S. garment workers collective in Chicago called Blue Tin Production. Let's talk about Blue Tin Production. Why is it called Blue Tin?
2: So I think for us, we wanted to acknowledge the fact that the women in our lives have always been doing this work for forever. And this is not a new thing that we're getting immigrant women and women of color to sew together because this is something that has always been happening. So it's the Danish gluten cookies that your mother or grandmother probably are storing their sewing kit in.
0: My, my grandmother and my mother. <laughs> literally, you need to find a needle or... <laughs> Uh, a button, that is where you go.
2: I actually never tasted those cookies until one of my friends got those for us as a gift <laughs> after we launched. It's such a disappointment. You
0: think it might be cookies and you open it and it's sewing supplies. The biggest letdown of childhood. <laughs> and how did you first get interested in Fashion.
2: I did not have stories of like trying on all my mother's dresses or shoes as a young kid. For me, as someone who was born and raised in Oklahoma, I think my first relationship with fashion by virtue of being a visibly Muslim woman and moving to Chicago to start college and realizing how I'm growing up in Oklahoma, you know, I had sort of been okay with what was not actually normal, was, was normal just by virtue of the fact that I knew that I presented as Muslim and therefore I'm going to be receiving violence as a result of that. Like not realizing that it wasn't normal to be called a terrorist and you go grocery shopping. So Me going to Chicago was like mind-blowing for me and made me really think about the privilege that so many people in the United States who are white, who are cis, who are straight, are able to not think about the power of the way that they dress every single day when they leave their house.
0: Let's talk about terms so we're all on the same page, you, me, and our listeners. What is fast fashion and what do you do?
2: Fast fashion is made to fall apart, and made to be a trend that you can consume very quickly and then get rid of and then buy more.
0: Hoda says fast fashion turns the typical four-season fashion industry calendar into 52 seasons a year.
2: Which means that every week fast fashion has a new season. <laughs> there's like pre-spring, pre-pre-spring, all, whatever you can think of, there's a season for it. Um, And that's why you can go on a website like Forever 21 and see 5 million new styles added daily is because every week they have intense deadlines. But in order to meet these intense deadlines, you have to push people to produce in quantities and speeds that are actually humanly impossible to meet. And this is not just like, oh, like I can't
0: sew that fast.
2: These are legitimately humanly impossible standards to meet. So that's when violence comes into the picture.
0: Verbal and physical abuse, sexual harassment and overwork, just some of the experiences of women making clothes for Gap,
1: H&M and Walmart.
2: 80% of garment workers are women, and that is not an
0: accident. The women are young, the women are far from home, it's often their first jobs, and they're vulnerable. She says we've come to think of clothes as being cheap, and we don't understand, or maybe don't want to think about, the ways in which those clothes are made.
2: For example, right now we see a lot of Etsy stores or a lot of local boutiques use the words handmade to imply that therefore the rest of apparel is not handmade, when in fact all of our clothes are made by humans and it's not machine-made. Machines are are used in the process of apparel manufacturing as are other things that are quote-unquote handmade. But I think that we oftentimes, specifically in a hyper-capitalist world as we're living in today, tend to strip the makers from the products.
0: Huda tends to use the example of a $5 t-shirt to show how this plays out.
2: The idea of a $5 t-shirt is this American or Western myth or a myth of capitalism. Just the lifetime of a shirt, the way that a simple cotton t-shirt is made, there are so many hands that it goes through. Consider the classic white t-shirt. Annually, we sell and buy two billion t-shirts globally, making it one of the most common garments in the world.
0: The cotton in the shirt might be picked by forced labor from Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, in China, where up to 20% of the world's cotton is picked. Then it gets spun and turned into thread in another part of the world, also often under forced conditions. Dyeing it causes harmful pollution, and then it's cut and turned into fabric that's sewn by garment workers, usually women of color, often in South and Southeast Asia. And then it's
2: shipped for finishing, and there's so many other steps. This is a condensed version, and then it comes to the United States to be sold for $5. And so we just see a $5 price tag. But to think that there are so many parts of that supply chain in which there are people whose livelihood depends on doing that one part of the chain, and also there's profit involved. So there is a cost, but we're just not taking that on because we live in an empire that has forced that cost onto the rest of the world.
0: The conversation around fast fashion has been here for a long time and has been debated and picked apart. And yet, still, you're going to find arguments from people who say, I need that $5 t shirt because I don't make enough money to afford Prada. And so they think these are the two ends of the fashion spectrum. What would you say? I love this question.
2: (laughs) And this is always a question that comes up for Americans and people living in the West, particularly, because we always learn that we should be pitting poor people against each other instead of looking up and the institutions and structures of power. So instead of asking, why is this shirt too expensive? Why can't I afford this? We should be asking, why is the owner of Nike one of the richest men on earth? Why is the owner of Interdex that owns Zara one of the richest men on earth? So I think that it's an unfair question. (laughs) And I think it's really important though because it allows us to then redirect our gaze as to where actually um, these questions need to be asked.
0: It was this mindset that led Hoda to create blue tin. Hoda wanted to create her own collection of clothes, but she couldn't find a garment facility in the US that she felt comfortable with, even the ones marketing themselves as ethical. And she was talking about this with a designer friend who told her, you should just start your own factory. Hoda laughed, but that's what she ended up doing.
2: It was totally an accident. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't actually realize there was different types of needles or thread when I started everything. It was a a steep, steep learning curve.
0: (laughs) So did you know how to sew?
2: Absolutely not. No, I made one ill-fitting shirt with my mother before then. (laughs) (laughs) That was the extent of my sewing skills. And and that's why also it was so important for it to be a workers' cooperative because I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. And obviously the people who are experts at this should be deciding how everything operates. So it was not just because it seemed logical, but because it would have been impossible to run this company any other way uh, other than to have it as a workers' cooperative.
0: Hoda had that first conversation about starting a factory in 2016. And it took a while for Blue Tin to come to life.
2: The first thing after a few years of just me learning (laughs) and realizing that there are multiple types of needles, we put out a call for people to come and have a test.
0: A sewing test to hire the seamstresses. Hoda and some friends went to different refugee resettlement agencies, domestic violence shelters and other community groups around Chicago to spread the word. And that's how Hoda met a woman named Mercy.
1: My name is Mercy. I'm originally from Nigeria. I've been working as a seamstress since 1986.
0: Mercy and her kids came to the U.S. to join her husband in 2003. But she said it had long been an abusive marriage. And she mentioned one day that was the beginning of the end. She said she was crossing the street. Her husband was in the car and waved at her to go forward. And then he hit her with the car.
1: I was coming back from the store. It is not a busy street. It's just like a one-way street. I was trying to cross. He gave me the go-ahead to like cross. As soon as I entered, he just hit me. I was in the hospital for about a week. I had to get a surgery on my knee. And, and then after the surgery, we said that accident was a warning. The next one is going to take your life. And that was when I was like, oh my God, I have to get help.
0: Mercy went to a local organization for domestic violence survivors. And in 2017, she left her husband after 30 years. And it was from that same organization that she found out about Blue Tin. Everyone told her she would be perfect for it. But the day before the sewing test, Mercy was so nervous, she couldn't sleep.
1: I keep waking up like every 30 minutes. It's like... 11 o'clock, I was like, okay, go back again, look at the time, 11.30, go back again. And I was like, okay, since I'm going for a sewing test, what's a better way to go for a sewing test than wearing what you made?
0: And that's what struck Huda when Mercy first walked in.
1: It was a red shirt that had these frills, and it was like this
2: beautiful African print. It was fitted and had a little peplum at the bottom, and the shoulders were beautiful, and it was like flutter a little bit as she walked. So she was like, oh yeah, I made this shirt, and I was like... You made that? She's like, yeah, I made it this morning.
0: Mercy came two hours early. She was the first one there. She actually helped set up. Hoda and a designer friend still hadn't settled on a sample garment for the test before Mercy arrived. So what Mercy made at her test ended up being the sample
1: for everyone else that day. It was a light blue silk top. So when I finished, I came out of the testing room. At the hallway, there were about over 100 women. I was like, oh my God. If I have come late and meet these 100 these women, I could have gone back like, Mm-mm. I don't think I have a chance. Thank God I came early.
0: She went back for a few more tests of her other skills,
1: and soon enough, she had the job. They were like, congratulations, you're part of the team. I couldn't say anything. I just started crying. Then everybody was just getting up to give me a hug. I felt really like I belonged there.
0: Mercy has been there
1: now for about two
0: years. She works with three other seamstresses.
1: A typical day in Blueting, we start at 8 o'clock. It's like a one and a half hours commute from my house to Blueting. I don't drive. So I leave home 6.30 to get here some few minutes to 8 o'clock. So as soon as we come in, it's a wonderful team, you know. We just jump into work. But Mercy says it's never
0: all work at Blue 10.
1: We just, every day, we, we just look for reason to laugh. And then sometimes we just, we dance, you know. So, you yeah, know, sometimes we have the playlist, the Blue 10 playlist. We have the Nigerian music, American gospel music. The other sisters, they listen to Arabic music. So whichever music that comes on, if the beat is good before, you know, it, somebody's dancing, somebody's standing up, we all are dancing, you know, you feel like, you know, you're just hanging out with your best friend. You know, even the day goes by so fast, it is four o'clock, you'll be like, oh, it's four o'clock, you know. It's a fun place to walk at.
2: I'm so incredibly grateful for Mercy, specifically, who has just given me trust And love from the first day, that was so mutual. And it wouldn't have been possible without her really helping lead the way in terms of the sewing and all of the aspects of production.
0: Mercy owned her own shop with apprentices working for her in Nigeria. And she said what she's doing now is easier compared to the evening wear she was making before Blue 10. These women are professionals, and Hoda said it was important to her to make sure the cooperative centered working-class women of color, particularly immigrants and refugees.
2: A large reason for that also is because prior to Bluetin, I had volunteered with refugee resettlement agencies, and they're just drenched in white saviors. There's this idea that we are like lending a hand and like helping these poor refugees who have just gone through so much um to like come to this country and we're like giving them a life and they can do the american dream and we didn't want to be like a cute refugee sewing group which is what a lot of people i think think instantly when they hear us because we also don't want designers coming to us because they want to use the word refugee to sell clothes we want designers to coming to us because they know the quality of our work is amazing because the people who are working here are experts
0: so from that first day when Mercy was early and you didn't yet have a model or a pattern for people to work off of, how did it grow to what it is today?
2: A lot of tears. <laughs> <laughs> I cried probably at least twice a week. <laughs> it was so incredibly stressful for so many reasons. And I think not just because of the, the uphill learning curve, it's... A big enough challenge to be able to fight with a designer and say no we're not going to accept this level of a price point and you need to pay us more because this is what we need in order to survive and thrive and so being able to sort of rewrite the script in terms of how supply chain power dynamics operate was an uphill battle because designers weren't used to being put in their place <laughs> and on top of that obviously capitalism was also something that we were challenging in many ways by trying to explore the questions of how can we create a workplace that centers people and not profit? And how can we create a space in which it's not just a place that you go to work and you come home to make money, but the healing can actually happen here too.
0: As we've mentioned, Blue Tin is also a workers' cooperative. So I asked Huda what that collective experience is like.
2: Everybody who is part of the business, all of the members actually own the business and all of the decisions are collectively made. So everything from salaries to the hours that we work, to the political workshops that we have, to the designers that we take on, everything. The name of the plant in our studio, (laughs) everything is collective. And I think that it just feels... So much it, that, like, common sense. Like the people who are making the clothes should decide what clothes we make. The people who are working should decide what the working conditions are and have the means and ownership over their work and their
1: product. Before I got the job, my daughter was like, Ma, I don't see you working for anybody. You are your own boss. You've been your own boss forever. So I don't see you working for somebody. I was like, okay, they want me to try. So then I didn't know it was a co-op. So then when Hoda told me, he said, this is a co-op, nobody's a boss, everybody owned the business, I was like, this is God. This is God.
0: Since Blue Ten launched in 2019, they've worked with multiple designers, selling to their businesses, not directly to consumers. In 2021, Blue Ten announced that they would be moving headquarters to a new community space they're launching called 63rd House.
2: It's really exciting to see how much growth can happen despite how challenging it is every single day. So many days I'll, I'll go to the studio and something will happen and I am on the verge of tears because of how stressful everything is. And by the end of the day, I'm on the verge of tears from laughing so hard.
0: Hoda says there are many small moments that feel revolutionary to her, but can't be quantified or shared online or in a report.
2: You know, like lunchtime conversations, one of our past members realized that she was in a domestic violence situation just by talking with one of our other members who was a former domestic violence survivor. And then she like left her husband and we all went to her house and wow. helped her move in and found her apartment and spent the day, you know, at Marshalls, like laughing and dancing to Sexy for the Shirt <laughs> and like buying her all of her move supplies. But we're not gonna like put that in an annual report, but it's these little moments that I think are really special and keep us going through the really challenging times that we have at the same time.
0: If people take one message from Blue Ten, what do you want that to be?
2: Mm. I think at the core of Blue Ten is that we have all that we need and we can start imagining and building the world that we want. And I think we have every right to do it. And I think that it's our obligation to ourselves to be able to not just like meet international standards and say like, oh look, we're fair trade, but actually sit and think about what you want, not just today or tomorrow, but what your community needs in a hundred years. We want to make sure the world that we're building is safe for all of us, not just to survive, but really be able to live a life that feels fulfilling and good. And you can go to work and feel good about coming to work the next day. And we have what we need to imagine that world and then start to build it on our terms.
1: To take one thing from Blue Thing, I would say, is a place where you are appreciated for your talents. It's not just a place where you just come to make money. It's a place where you grow. You grow as an individual, and you grow in your craft, too. So I think you know, it's a blessing.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was originally produced by Alexandra Locke, with Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, Negin Oliai, Ney Alvarez, Priyanka Tove, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Tom Fenton is our editor. Aya El is our engagement producer and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back.